0: This Prop Talk recording is a news and opinion product that is the property of Original Prop Blog LLC, all rights reserved. Original Prop Blog LLC is not responsible for any statements or opinions expressed by the guests of this program. Live on tape from the OPB studios in Northern California, it's Prop Talk. Brought to you by the Original Prop Blog, we're making analog connections across the world. Each podcast features one-on-one chats with special guests to discuss the hobby of collecting original movie props and costumes. The Original Prop Blog is the original source of news, information, and opinion about authentic popular culture artifacts and memorabilia from film and television. Now, let's join our host, Jason (laughs) DeBoer.
1: Okay, so I think we're pretty much set on the technological side. Woohoo!
2: Wow, you got the uplink and the downlink, and the NASA has been advised that this is going on.
1: Yeah, the lights are blinking.
2: Oh, fantastic! <laughs> as long as the lights are blinking,
1: if the lights are blinking. I know I'm good. Awesome. All right, so you ready to get started? Do it. All right, so welcome to Prop Talk, hey. and <laughs> today I'm very excited to have Mr. James Commissar as my guest welcome
2: thank you Good to be here with you jason i'm very fond of what you're doing
1: thanks and uh... james is a curator of the commissar collection and if, maybe if you want to tell people a little bit about that just as a quick overview before we delve into the past um, sure. just to set sure. some context
2: well the commissar collection is the world's defining collection of basically all things television costumes props sets vehicles, uh, and related ephemera. Uh, Our goal is simply to document and celebrate the last 60 years of our broadcast history, and we've been doing it for about 20 years. Wow.
1: And you have, I think I read, 6,000 items. Is that correct?
2: Oh, more than that. We probably have uh, 6,000 groups of objects in our database. Um, And of course, it depends on how you count an object. Is a there's a hat that goes with the costume, is that a separate object? Do the shoes, does the badge, or those separate objects? Right. Could be much higher, depending on how you slice up the cake.
1: Okay. So let's, let's go back to the very beginning. Um, you started out in comedy writing, correct?
2: <laughs> I did, that's true. Uh, basically, right out of high school, I was a comedy writer. I was writing jokes for people like uh, Joan Rivers and Howie Mandel and uh, Eddie Murphy's company. Fairly early on, I started writing material for, for uh, stand-ups and Vegas performers. Uh, I wrote an act for a guy who uh, just passed recently. Danny Gans who was a great entertainer in Vegas. Mm-hmm. Um, and many others. And I just started getting jobs at, at really at age 17. And uh, that gave me access to studio lots. You know, I worked for some of these production companies and these inter, uh, in a, independent entertainers. And it gave me the opportunity to just take my lunch and grab my apple and walk around the studio lots. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to walk through the wardrobe and prop departments. I always thought, man, if I could just get up there on those rafters and look around, I bet you I could find uh, genie's bottle or <laughs> Herman Munster's jacket. And uh, I'm pleased to tell you that I did. I would find them, but the problem was none of them were for sale. The studios obviously were not set up as retail shops. They were uh, rental units, and so what I did figure out pretty early on is they would not sell me something outright. However, all the objects in rental stock had a replacement value. So if a production, let's say, rented out that uh, gray, tattered, Blazer that was once worn by Herman Monster and they rented it out to some music video uh, and it rented for $15 a week. If they didn't bring it back they owed usually about 10 times the weekly rental or $150. Hmm. So they wouldn't let me buy them but they said hey look, if you want to rent it and for some reason it gets lost wink wink or it doesn't come (laughs) back and you want to play the replacement value uh, we're fine with that. We give you an invoice that says it's paid in full and you own it. So that's really how the madness started.
1: And what, what year was it that all this kind of started up for you?
2: The first auction I attended was in 1989. I mean, that was the first time I ever formally went into a building to buy memorabilia. There was a company called Camden House that was started actually by a a dentist by the name of Barry Vilkin, who had an office in Westwood, and he loved film posters. Hmm. So he staged these auctions that took place uh, at the Wilshire Ebell Theater here in Los Angeles, California. And it was uh, these materials were displayed in this great vintage building, and it was just magical. And that's where it started. The first pieces I purchased were bumper cards from The Tonight Show. You would see these images. As they went in and out of commercials, they would say, like, stay tuned, more to come, The Tonight Show. Mm -hmm. And the universe conspired against me that day because I knew I wanted those pieces. I, as a kid, always wanted to be a comedy writer because I wanted to write for Johnny Carson. So I knew I wanted those bumper cards for my office wall. And as it turned out, they were virtually the last pieces in the auction session. I had to sit through hours of stuff to get to those bumper cards which, by the way, only sold for $212. So I realized at the end of that day, number one, I value TV stuff more than the next guy because I was prepared to pay ten times that price Mm -hmm. to acquire that original artwork. And secondly, I was just hooked. I mean, I, I couldn't quite process this idea that just a guy off the street could buy pieces of our shared popular culture. So that all started in 1989.
1: Do you know how um, Camden was getting pieces like that?
2: Um, you know, I have to tell you, in those days, in 1989, obviously that was pre-Internet, pre-Craigslist, right. pre-Ebay, uh, and I believe in those days they put ads in newspapers. I know that once I was already committed to trying to find these pieces, I used to put an ad in the classified section of the L.A. Times every Sunday, and it said, wanted ruby slippers. <laughs> and then it would go on to say, you know, and other Hollywood artifacts, please call. And that was my eBay in 1989 and 1990. And for the most part, it was very ineffective. Right. I mean, people would call me up uh, wanting to offer me life insurance, and I got calls <laughs> from people looking for jobs. And, wow, there were really some dark and weird things that were... Uh, Offered to me through those ads, I remember the the dentist from Las Vegas who called me up and he said, I have the plaque, the dirt, scraped off the teeth of Elvis Presley. Would you like to buy it? <laughs> and he went on to say that it was from his earlier years. <laughs> like, this, like It had a special pedigree. And then, of course, I remember uh, a mortician who claimed to have a lock of hair snipped from uh, Marilyn Monroe's head during her body preparation for burial and wow that kind of stuff. And even in those very, very early days, I knew what I, I wasn't going to be a part of. And But that's sort of how we did it. That's sort of how I did it, actually putting ads in newspapers. I don't think some people who are listening to this uh, even read physical newspapers. Later, <laughs> but that's how we did it in the Wild West days of 1989. That's how we got the word out.
1: Huh. Now, was it always television that interests you or was there a time you were looking at film as well or is it always just tv that you had a fondness for
2: well actually i started out wanting to collect things from films especially the wizard of oz was my favorite film and i really set out to buy things from great and iconographic and important films the first film piece i ever bought was Charlton from staff that part of the red sea and the ten commandments and cecil b DeMille's 1956 ten commandments so I was not born TV boy. I actually started out going down another road, but I ended up in television, and I think that um, I, I think we all collect the things that we uh, emotionally connect with. Um, and I think. The reason I went down a different road and perhaps innovated a different area of Hollywood memorabilia is I had a completely different emotional c- connection to the people who came before me, the Debbie Reynolds and Bill Thomas and Glenn Brown and some of these great people who uh, really pioneered the hobby. Um, I did not grow up on Judy Garland or Marilyn Monroe. My screen heroes were Keith Partridge or Herman Monster. So I bought from my heart and I went down a different road than they did because those were... Those were the, the the touchstone treasures that I sought out. I mean, intellectually, I understood the importance of a Marilyn Monroe, Monroe dress, but I felt a Marilyn Munster dress in my gut. I mean, because she was part of my own history. That's what I wanted. I wanted to connect to my own past. I was a fat kid who grew up watching way too much television. So that's really what appealed to me. And I must tell you, in those early days, people thought I was insane. I mean... Who would go out there looking for Keith Partridge's flared performance <laughs> trousers from the Partridge family I mean now, as I uh speak to and consult with uh investment publications like Forbes and Wall Street Journal and others, you know they think I was crazy like a fox. They think right. that I sort of uh sussed out and um somehow. Got into my brain that this was going to be a great market and these beloved TV treasures were going to be um, assets with with a fantastic upside I'm here to tell you that I was nowhere near that bright I mean I just knew that I loved the shows I grew up with the shows and wanted to collect the physical ephemera from these cult classic television productions
1: is there a certain decade of of television that you have the most connection to from growing up or, um, you know, that, that really speaks to you more than, than anything else?
2: I think so. I mean, I, I was born in 64. So I grew up watching Saturday morning kids shows right around the late sixties, early seventies. So, um, I have a great spiritual connection with the Sid and Marty crop shows of the, of, you know, 1969, 70, 71, H.R. Puff and stuff, of course, uh, Lidsville, um, the Croft Super Show, shows like that. So Mm -hmm. I tend to be particularly nutty about Saturday morning kid shows of the 1970s. Really, television of the 1970s is probably uh, the core of my collection. However, I try not to just purchase things that appeal to me. In some ways, it doesn't matter what James Commissar grew up watching or liking. We try to document the entire medium of television, and I think that's sort of what separates me from being a collector, uh, a curator, especially museum curator, are looking for the objects that tell the story um, and document a, a certain period of time. That's sort of how we look at it, what pieces, what shows, what materials... Tell the story not only about what was on TV, but what was happening off TV at the time. I mean, because there's obviously there's a reciprocal influence between American television and American culture.
1: Right. Probably much more so than film, because it's it's everything's developed so much more quickly in television.
2: Well, yes, absolutely. I mean, when you in hindsight, when you look back on a show like The Munsters. And it's a show about a family who's great, very likable people, but they just look a little different than the rest of us. And the fact that that was programmed during the middle of the race riots, you know, it's it's not a coincidence.
1: Right. So, basically, when you started collecting then, you were like in your early, mid-20s then? Is that right? Yep.
2: Okay. I was indeed. And shockingly, you know... By you know, I started collecting in '89. By 1991, I was already starting the entertainment memorabilia unit for Butterfield and Butterfield in Los Angeles, um, a a very respectable local auction company that that had an office here in Los Angeles and in San Francisco. It then became eBay Butterfield. eBay purchased it. Then they sold it, and it is now called Bonhams. But I started uh, the memorabilia department there, and I was able to bring in consignments like the Western Costume Company Star Collection, uh, the William Moore Tice Estate, and others. And uh, yeah, so two years into the into the hobby, I was already um, consulting and uh, bringing other materials to
1: market. So in doing that. What kinds of people were you meeting as, as buyers? Like, would you go to the actual auctions and sort of watch and see what happened and see what, if you could meet some of the people that you were know, becoming interested in this material?
2: Well, not so much that. I mean, I, I was already aware of uh, people in the marketplace who were credible and had materials. Most of them worked in the entertainment industry, and having the stuff was just sort of the remnants from their career. Uh, I thought it would be great if some of those people had the ability to sell those items, but more importantly, if we had the ability to buy those items, that right. would be great. So that was sort of the mission. Um, I was very happy to work with some very important people from earlier on in the hobby, like the great, great Bill Thomas, who is now gone, and Larry McQueen and Glenn Brown, these guys from the earlier era, and you know, working alongside them, especially uh Processing the Western Costume star collection was probably one of the highlights of my uh, life in this marketplace today, to date.
1: Hmm. So what? So what was that like? Like, what exactly did you do? What kinds of um, costumes were you handling?
2: Well, that was a that was quite magical. On that, Bill Haber, who owned Western Costume Company, and it at the time was, I believe, president of Creative Artists Agency, one of the most powerful talent agencies in town. Um, he contacted me wanting to do something with these uh, assets. They were Some of them were locked up in the top story of the building, which was probably the hottest area in the entire building. Um, others were scattered throughout their rental stock of what must be millions of garments. And he felt that they could serve a higher purpose. Uh, Not only did he feel that he could make some money, but he felt that they should be in the hands of those who covet and could care for these pieces. So we started out with the mission of perhaps finding uh, a couple hundred great pieces that we could offer at auction. And ultimately, we found probably a thousand. And the first session featured things like uh, Scarlett O'Hara's Uh, a gown that she wore during the Shantytown scene of Gone with the Wind and Clark Gable. Eddie Schmidt designed jackets from Gone with the Wind and uh, and so many other great pieces. I mean, hundreds of them. The sale did very, very well. And um, it brought these materials that uh, were just really, I mean, forgive me, rotting, um, to the marketplace and got them in the hands of those people who could and will hopefully take care of them.
1: So do you have a sense of what kinds of people were buying things like at that time?
2: Well, interestingly, I mean, that was the early 90s, and it was a completely different marketplace. I mean, there still wasn't a art market per se. There still wasn't a high melt value for these pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, so the people who were attracted to them were people who simply loved motion pictures, and they wanted to get a shroud worn or wielded by their favorite film star, and that was the driver. There was no, gee, I wonder if I buy it, if, you know, if this, this is going to trend up, will there be some equity in it, could I sell it, could I put my kid through college? There was none of that. So the people who were attracted to especially some of these uh, vintage garments were themselves older people. Mm-hmm. um and it was at that point you know a little bit of an older hobby the younger people wanted stuff from you know contemporary films and right. the people of a certain age wanted uh pieces from actors that perhaps most of us don't even know anymore i mean right uh, olivia de Havilland, who sonia Henney, what <laughs> i mean people it's, it's shocking that that I think a lot of people don't even know who John Wayne was. (laughs) It's just shocking to me how these icons uh, quickly become invisible.
1: Yeah. Well, I think part of it's time and and another part of it's just, if you look at popular culture today, there's just, you know, there's movies, television, the internet, and just so much stuff being published and broadcast and um, released that, I think we're kind of in this short attention span theater where for something to really stand out, you know, it's it's not like it used to be where there just wasn't that much um, material or, um, you know, popular culture shows and movies and things like there are now.
2: Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think that uh, people, you know, you watch TV commercials today and if there isn't a quick cut like every second, they're, they're worried that they're going to lose the viewer. Right. So I think that that's true. I think in in the earlier days, of, certainly the days of MGM in the 30s and 40s, where they had these you know, two and a half, three-hour films mm-hmm. with you know these sort of long, lazy sort <laughs> of production moves, where I mean, you know, a scene could last 15 minutes. You yeah. know, it's not now where you know I know as a TV writer, it's got to be line, line joke, line, line joke, and if you're not out of that scene in in, in six pages, you're done. Yeah. So it was a different time, um, and it was, I think, you know, quite a, a magical time. I think that, uh, as far as the physical ephemera, I mean, the pieces were also different. If you look at pieces now, how they are made for motion picture and television, it, it wasn't, you know, uh, it, in these early days. These pieces were made with gold bullion thread, and you know. The undergarments were made out of the, the most beautiful imported lace. You know, there's a story that uh, I believe it was Olivia de Havilland once went to saw Louis B. Uh, uh at MGM and said, uh, gosh, you know, my petticoats are so beautiful and the silk and the pearl buttons. And he said, you, you, perhaps you're wasting money. Who's going to know that I'm wearing it? And he turned to her and said, my dear, you will know. <laughs> and he felt that. You know, if, if the actor is supposed to be, uh, you know, a regal character, then they should be in dressed in that sort of finery, and that will somehow translate and will come out in the performance. And that's what they did in the great days of you know MGM when they boasted more stars than in the heavens. It was a different time, and uh, the garments were just
1: uh, incredible. Mm-hmm. And at that same time, since the you know the internet was just getting started there. How do you think the sort of collector community was different? Do you get a sense that different collectors would attend these auctions and talk and make connections and, you know, telephone each other afterwards and keep in contact? Or was it just a lot more, um, segmented where people just sort of bought what they wanted and there wasn't really any dialogue or, um, you know, that, that portion of the hobby where people, Sort of share in their excitement and stuff over this material. Uh, it was, talking about it.
2: It's that's a great question, and it was just it was such a warm, lovely time. You know, I I remember like I mentioned earlier the Camden House auctions of the early nineteen nineties. You know, I remember before every auction, uh, Bill Thomas, who was really one of the pioneers of this hobby, uh, and Larry McQueen and Glenn Brown and myself, and sometimes others, we would go to the Camden House preview on the Friday night or the night before the actual auction. And then we would all go to Marie Callender's, and we'd sit around the table and talk about the pieces we loved and why we loved it, and we'd get each other's opinions on, God, I can only afford one piece. Should I get this or should I get that? And it was just so innocent and sweet, and the thing that drove all of us was just passion. I mean, profit wasn't even a consideration. It was just about, you know, our expression uh, of the love of these pieces and filmmaking and television production, and it was nothing was about you know do you think I can flip it? Do you, you know do you think <laughs> that I can uh, do some restoration and make a grand and I mean it was it was right. a sweet, innocent time, and it was just about passion you know there's there 's a tremendous shift in the marketplace which we 're aware of. I mean right. now that we 're all online and now that this hobby is attracting not just uh, millionaires or mega-millionaires, but in fact billionaires, everything is different. Now it's about uh, people sort of trying to prognosticate how this will perform as an asset. I mean, I get it. I'm a consultant for clients like that, and I understand the uh, the thinking behind it, mm-hmm. but I also think it's sort of sad because I was around in a different time when the only consideration was you know what's the most beautiful costume or which piece resonated with you the most that was the criteria it wasn't you know boy i think you know this auction is taking place on mother's day i think i might be able to get a deal because some people won't be online bidding against me i better get this you know that's it's that's it was a different kinder time i mean i like this time too this is an exciting time as well but it was just so innocent back in the day
1: so back then, was it, was it really Los Angeles-centric? I mean, just because of the limitations in technology and whatnot at the time, or you know, people generally weren't even aware of these auctions um, and didn't attend them unless they were sort of local to um, Los Angeles area? Uh, I would say
2: Los Angeles, California, New York City. I would say those were the two markets. I mean, I remember in the early days of Butterfields, when I was running that department, I mean, you might send out 300 catalogs. I mean, Mm. if you printed 500 catalogs, that was, you had some great expectation for that sale. (laughs) And you put those in the mail, and that was how people learned about the sale. They didn't get any publicity. Obviously, there was no internet. None of the auction companies really could afford to buy display ads in publications. Not that the companies weren't wealthy. They could if they wanted to, but the marketplace brought in so little money right. that they would just never buy a $1,000 display ad in Los Angeles Times to advertise a sale that they thought it was going to you know, ultimately make them $15,000 in commission. So it, it really was people in the L.A. area, uh, Christie's East, which was then run by Kathleen Guzman, who was a great lady who now took over the operations for Heritage in New York City, Um that was pretty much it. You went to Camden House, um, you went to Butterfields, and then you went to Christie's East in New York City. And uh, these auction companies had usually two auctions a year, and there were, I don't know, 200 items, 250 items in a session. And everybody was happy. Everybody was delighted. Now, auction companies, it's not surprising if they offer 1,000 or 1,200 right. pieces in, in, uh, in an auction, and, um, But I guess the, the demand warrants it. Again, mm-hmm. back then it was just uh, 200 pieces in auction, plenty to go around for everybody.
1: Right. So when do you think it really broke and became more of an international um, field? Uh, two
2: words, planet Hollywood. I mean, mm-hmm. that's really what I think drove the market to the, to the next level. Uh, it seemed like almost overnight our sleepy little hobby became uh, a thriving marketplace. And what what it was fueled by was Arnold Schwarzenegger's checkbook. Mm -hmm. Um, We were all of a sudden, we were like a real art market. The demand was greater than the supply, and that just opened the floodgates. Uh, to forgeries, stolen goods, dubious brokers. It really changed the marketplace forever in some good ways, but I think, Perhaps more bad ways.
1: So what percentage of stuff was Planet Hollywood buying at auction when when they really started getting going with that?
2: It wasn't uncommon for somebody from Planet Hollywood to be on the phone and they would just uh, say to the person who was taking the phone bids, "Buy the page." and uh-huh. then they'd call them back and they'd say, "Buy the next page." And these boys at on Hollywood, boy, they were not organized. I mean, they'd have, you know, they'd have one of the owners of the company on the phone bidding. They'd have uh, one of their buyers in Los Angeles live at the auction. And sometimes they didn't even know about each other. And they were bidding each other up. And it was just a, wow, it was not a well-run organization. Hmm. Uh, and the result was the price points went to the moon. You know, you'd have a a rubber gun used by Bruce Willis in Die Hard with a Vengeance that was seen, you know, he had it in, he was holding it in an elevator for three seconds, you know, that was worth two to $400. And then Planet Hollywood would get on it and it would sell for $8,800. Wow. So those price points sort of drove the marketplace and they attracted some very colorful characters. They, 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 encouraged and empowered a lot of people to create forgeries and reproductions. You know, I can tell you that it was a wild time. I mean, you could always tell them Planet Hollywood was opening a new restaurant because somebody like me, I would get like a dozen phone calls within an hour from various brokers who were selling things. And the scenario would go something like this. Monday, Planet Hollywood would put the word out that they need 150 pieces for their next restaurant. By Tuesday, they had to sign off on 150 items. And by Wednesday, you know, the trucks would come and pick them up. Sometimes the brokers would send them directly to the new restaurant. And on Thursday and Friday, they would have them in the parking lot, and they would be shoving them and hot-gluing them right into the acrylic display cases <laughs> right there on site Thursday and Friday. And Saturday would be the opening. Wow. So uh, it didn't allow a lot of time for research and diligence let's just say right and that's how it went a lot of the time I mean I think more thought perhaps went into buying the the high ticket prices the you know the marquee pieces but I saw that happen over and over again
1: Wow so between what year and what year was this really like um, most active
2: I think they jumped in around it feels like around ninety two or ninety three there were people buying for about a year before the first restaurant opened in New York City. And they were stockpiling a lot of materials. At that time, they were really action film-centric. They wanted stuff from, you know, we want Tom Cruise's briefcase from Mission Impossible. We want Rocky Balboa's boxing gloves from Rocky and so on. It was all very action-oriented. We didn't know in those beginning days that their partners would be Bruce Willis and Schwarzenegger and Stallone and others. Hmm. And that's the kind of stuff they were really looking for.
1: Hmm. So really that that era really just changed the whole hobby forever in terms of values and, and sort of bringing in some opportunists that are trying to basically manufacture some, quote, original props to sell.
2: Absolutely. I mean, look, every art market has its problems ours is a very complicated art market and we have you know some of the same problems with forgeries and uh pieces that don't have uh you know compelling lineage and so on but so what do you do if you're the guy who worked on you know a kruger film and four or five brokers are calling you up saying hey man if you had a original Glove. I could probably give you fifteen hundred bucks for it, but he mm-hmm. doesn't because, as you know, you know those things were, for the most part, retained by the studios after the production wrapped. Right. But you know, I still have the mold, and I have some extra pieces, and I'm the one that built it. I could put one of those damn things together in an hour if I had to. Right. And then the wheels start turning, and then all of a sudden, you know, hey, uh, hey, James, you know, I did find a glove back here, sort of thing. In. You know, those sort of pieces littered the landscape. I mean, they seemed to come up on a daily basis, and they had a ready buyer in Planet Hollywood. I mean, they Mm -hmm. gravitated towards and liked those pieces. And um, so, with that sort of came, I think, the the birth of the marketplace for contemporary film memorabilia. Uh, There wasn't a lot of demand. In the earlier days, people were not seeking out. They Well, they were seeking out. In, in the early days, they wanted something from John Wayne. Now, all of a sudden, it, there was a, a shift to Bruce Willis. And I think that was uh, directly related to the rapid expansion of Planet Hollywood. Hmm. Same with that. Uh, they, they had a great impact on this marketplace, that's for sure. I mean, now, as you know, they're... They virtually do not exist. I think at the height, they had 100 restaurants, and I think now they might have less than a handful of company-owned restaurants left. Right. They have lent their name to the Planet Hollywood Casinos in Las Vegas, and perhaps there will be others. But if you walk into the Planet Hollywood Casino, there is no memorabilia in the lobby. So I think as an exhibitor and a repository of Hollywood memorabilia, that almost doesn't exist anymore anymore. At Planet Hollywood.
1: So, do you have any um, speculation about what will ultimately happen to all <laughs> that material that they bought?
2: Yes, I speculate that at some point it will come back into the marketplace. I mean, <laughs> I think that you know, sitting in a warehouse in uh, in Florida, it's right. sitting there. I mean, I, they do use some of it to uh, decorate the the rooms or the suites uh, at Planet Hollywood Casino and you know I don't know how long that's going to continue or perhaps they will repurpose all of those items in storage and build more casinos who knows but when that good day happens and these pieces come back into the marketplace it will create uh excitement and problems in equal parts
1: right interesting so getting back a little bit to your story you were working at Butterfield and Butterfield, and then how long did you do that for?
2: Well, I was there for about, uh, it was really about a year, and they asked me to renew, and I just, I couldn't. I mean, I knew it was an exciting time. I worked with really great people. I mean, Fuller French and I worked on the William Wertz Heist estate, and that was really a lot of fun. Um, as I said, I worked with the great Bill Thomas and others, and it was very educational and incredible and a very important part of my growth as a uh, as a collector and as a specialist in this hobby but really within a year I knew the auction business wasn't for me um, as most of us know their business model is to make money that is the goal you know mm-hmm. and the way you make money is sell things, sell lots of things, sell them fast, sell them often. You know, that's, the, that's their business model. Bring right. in as much materials as you can and sell them fast. And obviously, as a collector or a curator or even a fan of TV and motion picture, uh, you want to get it right. And it takes a lot of time, as you know, uh, as a curator of your own collection, it takes a lot of time to properly document and authenticate a piece. Mm -hmm. and it was hard enough back in the day where we had, like, gee, we only did two auctions a year, so we had six months to find a couple hundred pieces to document them, to photograph them, insure them, catalog, exhibit them, and sell them. We had, you know, five months before the catalog had to mail, and that was a couple hundred pieces, and that was very, very challenging, and that was um, having collectors at the helm, who really wanted to get the facts correct. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, you have these super auctions where, you know, you might see thirteen, fourteen hundred 1,400 pieces be sold over a weekend at auction. And I just don't think you can do it fast and do it right. right. In my considered opinion, it's not likely and, and maybe is impossible.
1: Mm-hmm. So... What 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 course did you take once you left uh, Butterfield and Butterfield in terms of um, being involved in this as a business?
2: Well, after leaving the auction business, I still had a, sort of an ongoing need to advocate for collectors, especially entry-level collectors. Um, <laughs> while I was at Butterfield, I earned the nickname, I kid you not, the Grim Reaper of Hollywood <laughs> Memorabilia. And... Uh, I guess that was because of all the items that were being over cataloged at various auction companies and came up, and I'd call the auction company and have them killed, have them taken out of the auction. So (laughs) I received that nickname, and I knew I wanted to continue on. I knew I wanted to uh, utilize my expertise, and I wanted to continue to collect and celebrate television. So um, I went on to build my own private clientele of individuals and organizations that that wanted to know what they were acquiring was authentic, thoughtfully acquired, and in reasonable condition. And I began to notice that very successful people who were extremely diligent and careful when buying other works of art were just sort of blindly buying memorabilia, making very poor decisions on their own. And so I started to build a clientele and to the point where it was common that I was working with, you know, well known actors, and directors, and studios, and agents, and I found a a niche for myself, and I continue on to this day to guide those who require third-party analysis of their cultural treasures. Obviously, if you're buying something at an auction company, uh, that is not unbiased information you are seeking. You are getting information from the party that endeavors to sell those materials to you. So it is often prudent to seek out your own information. You know, most People cannot afford a private consultant to come in and do their work, but um, it just starts and ends with asking lots of questions. If you're buying at auction, you must ask lots of questions. And in the end, if you're not satisfied that the auction company has great knowledge of that piece, uh, you need to walk away. You need to spend your hard-earned money somewhere else.
1: To your knowledge, has any auction house that deals in... um quote, entertainment memorabilia, used a third party for authentication for more than just a handful of items, other than, say, the Star Trek Christie's auction?
2: Oh, yes. I would say that for the most part, um, people sort of have this uh, kind of rarefied view and respect for auction companies. Mm -hmm. And maybe when, you know, James Christie started Christie's in London in the 1770s you know it was something different you know every piece that was in his auction was sort of received the good housekeeping stamp of approval it was authenticated it was vetted and by appearing within his auction uh it was their endorsement that the item was legitimate. I mean, that was the whole idea of buying art at auction in the first place. You had a friend in the business, they did the work, and perhaps that's how auction companies started very long ago, but that's not what it is anymore. Um, they're, If they can hire specialists at all, they are generalists, and you know, it's not uncommon that the guy who knows something about animation art has to sort of, Find his way in film posters and costumes and props, and there isn't just one person back there who has a focused uh, skill set. Mm -hmm. So it's it's very common that my phone will ring from auction companies who are considering consignments, but they don't have the focused knowledge in the area of television ephemera. So uh, I'm very often called to sort of help them figure it out. So. That's not uncommon, and I think that, that's, that goes on to this day, that uh, you bring the stuff into the auction company, and they say, well, let, let, let us think about it, we'll call you in a couple days, and then they get on the phone and call me or somebody else, and um, we help them sort of sort out what it is. I think that sort of happens. I mean, certainly there are auction companies who specialize in our sort of ephemera profiles in history, uh, Julian's and others, but again, you know, when you're pushing that kind of volume Mm -hmm. through your business, um, it's hard to get it all right.
1: So, when did you start um, what you call the Commissar Collection? Like, how did that begin?
2: I started collecting in 1989 and, you know, then it was Really motion picture stuff, I love The Wizard of Oz and other sort of big epic films, um, but I, I found out early on that the pieces that resonated within me were the were from shows that I grew up watching. I wasn't so much a film guy; I was you know i I really reacted strongly to television, and so that's what I stuck with and and literally within. Five years of starting my collecting, uh, let's see, by the 93, 94, I already had more television materials in the Smithsonian. I had a higher level of collection care and was thought to be the expert in this focused area. Mm-hmm. So it just it went down that road and never stopped. I mean, I I still can't believe that. I own these materials. I still can't believe that the people I grew up watching on television have entrusted me to care for and celebrate their materials. I mean, you know, the idea that Johnny Carson, after retiring from 30 years on this night show, the fact that he donated his complete set to me is still something I can barely reconcile in my tiny brain. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's so amazing and magical. And there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of examples of that. Uh, David Letterman donated his late night set to me. I mean, and that, and that Norman Lear, the All in the Family set and so on and so forth. And I have great pieces coming in all the time by leading artists, whether it's Donald Trump or Simon Cowell or, or so many examples of incredible performers still entrust me with their materials. That's what I find the most satisfying.
1: So that kind of leads into one thing I wanted to ask you about um do you also preserve things from unscripted or reality shows as well then
2: <laughs> indeed I do um, you know part of what I do is you know I have to conserve the entire television medium mm-hmm. doesn't matter what I like I've got to get the shows that were were beloved uh, the shows that were hated are just infamous I have to <laughs> somehow document an entire medium and you know unfortunately the materials don't necessarily come up after the show has ran its course so i can do some analysis of how popular or how influential the program was mm-hmm. you know more often is the case that okay there's this new show called american idol is anybody going to care It's the end of the first season and some wardrobes coming up some set pieces are coming up uh do i take a shot on them do i endeavor to guess what import they will have you know, to our culture and the and the broadcast medium. So a lot of times you really have to prognosticate and uh, a lot of them I got right. A lot of them I got right. I think, yes, you have to document. It's fine if I have stuff from the fifties or sixties. I mean, it's great. I have Jackie Gleason's bus driving uniform from the honeymooners, but for every piece I have from the fifties, I have to have a dozen pieces from the two thousands because You have to stay relevant. You have to stay relevant. I mean, this stuff will will all anchor a museum someday. We're in development for a permanent museum site. And if you don't appeal to the tweens and the young people, uh, you're screwed. You know, you can't just have stuff from I Love Lucy. You have to have stuff from uh, The Apprentice and Dexter and Nurse Jackie. And if you don't have those pieces, uh, you're dead.
1: Mm -hmm. So... You know, back in the day, there was the three networks. Now there's, you know, a bazillion cable channels and stuff. How, how do you keep on top of, you know, what's going on in television today?
2: It's it's very much a full-time undertaking. I mean, you're absolutely right. You not only have to uh, preserve your collection and, and give the pieces adequate care, um, but you have to... Be out there researching the shows, and you have to be able to make some sort of intelligent uh, determination on whether these shows are appropriate for long-term preservation and conservation. Um, certain, th- certain things I draw the line on, I mean, I don't know if I'm going to, down the road, if I'm going to regret it, but, like, I have decided there's no way I'm going to uh, curate anything from Jersey Shore. I don't <laughs> care if it's the most important show of the of this century. I'm not doing it. I might be upset with that decision down the road, but you know, we're definitely going after Showtime and HBO. I mean, they're the leaders. They are yeah. creating television fare that is just stunning, deeply textured characters. I mean, shows like we live for shows like the Sopranos. We might have 50 or 60 pieces from that show. I mean, we're mm. very eager to bolster our sub-collection of Dexter Um those shows are extremely important, and but you never know really how they're going to age. You know, yeah. we when Six Feet Under went off the air, what a glorious show that was! Um, and we received uh, about half of the the set and set decorations and pieces. And you never know how you're going to do. I mean, is that show going to be relevant to an audience ten years from now? Or, or I don't know.
1: Mm-hmm. I hope so. Did you um, get anything from The Wire? I did not. Oh, it's my all-time favorite show. It's a,
2: <laughs> it's a great show. You know, another thing is, as you know, you're, you yourself are a sophisticated collector that, you know, the sort of rule is you want to buy really the best possible piece you can afford. You want right. to buy a piece that you look at it and you go, oh, my God, that's...
1: Right, you know what you it know. is.
2: Right. You want to, ideally you want to see from across the room, that's Genie's bottle, you know, that sort of thing. You want that uh, easily recognizable piece. And a lot of times the really great pieces from current shows just don't come up. They'll right. either go home with the executive producer or the director or the actor, or they'll quickly disappear back into rental stock, or they'll, you know, disappear off the set. So it has to sort of be a perfect storm. It has to be, you have to be offered something from a show that you think is going to, live on and you also want to get that piece you know if you're out there considering items from dexter you want one of his kill outfits and maybe you know one of his knives and so on getting the fourth leads hat doesn't really <laughs> <laughs> i think doesn't do any good unless you have everybody else's stuff then it's wonderful but if that's all you have from the show not so good
1: yeah so can we quickly go, go, go down a list i just uh threw together last night and i was thinking about this to see if you had anything from these shows
2: all right, let me go over my database and see. I I certainly hope I have some of these pieces. Let's see. What are your favorite shows, by the way?
1: Oh, I have a lot. <laughs> I like a lot of the HBO shows, though. I was, I, I was wondering if you had anything from the Larry Sanders show.
2: Uh, zero. Oh. I have nothing from the Larry Sanders <laughs> show. Um, I know Gary Shanling. I've had conversations with him. Much of it is sitting in his stinky warehouse he doesn't know what to do with it oh really um yeah i think a lot of these guys who uh own their own shows Uh have sort of they at the wrap of the show they take it all and they put it into some dead storage somewhere for 55 cents a foot thinking that it's either important or valuable and then after a certain number of years of that they decide to hell with it and then they (laughs) contact somebody like me or it goes in an auction, but yeah, I think that most of the Larry Sanders stuff is sitting with the great Gary Shanling.
1: Well it's good to know it's out there. <laughs> what about um Band of Brothers?
2: Wow, nothing. Oh. <laughs> nothing. We uh we would like to acquire things from that show. Um I think a show like that, you know, I sort of think in my own brain in sort of exhibit suites, how would these be exhibited?
1: Uh-huh.
2: And I like to buy materials that I know that I can buy two or three or four great pieces at one time. Right. Then I at least feel that even if the show isn't that great or isn't that memorable over time, at least visually it's great, and we just never had the opportunity or perhaps I missed the opportunity to get a grouping of great pieces from that show, I concur that it's a great show and that is something that we should have. But Let's take a show like Let's take The Sopranos. Another great HBO show. Okay. 64 pieces. Let's see. We have one, two, three, four, five, six, about eight Tony Soprano ensembles. I see Junior Soprano, Paulie Walnuts. <laughs> I see Sal, Big Pussy, of course, Christopher. Um, lots and lots of wardrobe we got from the show fairly early on. We think that's a very important show, of course, Julia Polksa was the costume designer, did a brilliant job. Um, So we think that, in general, HBO is great, Showtime is great, um, and we're definitely seeking them out. The core of our collection would be your sort of big productions that have been around forever. I'm going to mention The Tonight Show because I'm a great fan of Johnny Carson. I knew him. He donated his materials to us. Here we have 134 different pieces from that show alone.
1: Wow. And you told me, um, I think a couple months ago, that there was an event you went to um, related to Johnny Carson, correct?
2: Ah, indeed. Uh, Comedy Central was doing a comedy awards show, and at the end of the evening, the the big award was going to be the Johnny Carson uh, Comedy Award of Excellence to some sort of great comic somebody who spent their life in comedy and in fact it went to david letterman Hmm. and i knew mr carson and i know the family and you know that's one of those legacies that i am shocked at how quickly he's sort of becoming invisible right and you know part of having this stuff a major part of having this stuff is keeping these legacies alive getting the materials out there exhibiting them in a respectful way and when we heard about the show um, i contacted the production And said, you know, as you use this Johnny Carson name, which the family permitted them to use, as the winner comes out, why don't they come out through Johnny Carson's original monologue curtains, those brightly colored curtains he would stand in front of at the beginning of the Tonight Show and deliver the monologue? And they thought it was an incredible idea, and, you know, then came the process of doing it in a way that was uh, archivally sound, Mm-hmm. You know, production companies are sort of operate on doing things as inexpensively as possible. So there's right. sort of a uh, an effort that has to be made to educate them on, you know, how it has to be presented and why. But they were absolutely great. They understood it. They got it. And the curtains were there. And that seems to be, you know, what the media picked up on most about that production was the fact that Johnny Carson's original cur- curtains were there, as were... Uh, other materials like his Karnak turban that he wore for 25 of the 30 years of the Tonight Show. And that was also on view. And so happy to do that sort of thing. It's not you know, optional. That's why this archive exists to get these materials out. And so we're always looking for great opportunities like that. But uh, long live the king, Johnny Carson. Uh, here's a guy who, for the most part, worked four or five days a year. When he started the show, the telecast was two hours a night and he was on for 30 years. I mean that will never happen again.
1: Yeah. And it was just such a singular show. Now there's, you know, endless shows that, you know, sort of mimic what what he used to do, but you know, he's for a lot of the time he's out there on his own doing that. So
2: extraordinary, a humble, decent, great guy in person and obviously one of the greatest entertainers in the history of the broadcast medium. Um you know, that's at the core of our collection, those sort of important vintage shows that went on year after year. Uh, all in the Family is another one of those shows. Norman Lear donated the complete set to us. Very, very important. I mean, the entire house, all the furnishings, there's a great story about the, the All in the Family chairs. As a lot of us know, there's a set of them in the Smithsonian. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are confused when I say, I own the Bunker Living Room chairs. It's a great story, really. When the show was going to be made, the pilot, they went to a thrift shop here in Southern California and they bought those two chairs for about $25 and they used them for the pilot presentation. Nobody thought the show was going to be picked up. It was very racy, but in fact it did and it went on for nine years and towards the end of the run there were problems with the cast and Carol O'Connor was a, a spirited guy and there were all kinds of problems and I guess towards the end there were a lot of Uh, threats that he would leave and the show would come to the end. So finally, that day came and Norman Lear donated both of the chairs to the Smithsonian and there was a lot of excitement surrounding this fact. A lot of people went to see the chairs and then two weeks later he found out the show was picked up to come back and Carol O'Connor was coming back but there were no chairs. So (laughs) Mr. Lear called the Smithsonian and explained the problem and they said, well, that's you're a problem. We have these great chairs that everybody wants to see. You donated them to us, and we think we're going to keep them.
1: Wow.
2: So they had to recreate another set of the chairs. This time they had to have this sort of uh, crappy-looking sort of muted fabric. They had to have it hand-loomed in England for $400 <laughs> a yard. Um, they had to recreate these chairs they bought for $25, now cost them $25,000 to recreate. And those, we have those chairs, the second set of chairs, as well as all the set walls, all the other furnishings, uh, everything from that great production. And you know, All the Family was a turning point in television. Up to that point, sitcoms were about, you know, I broke mom's vase. How am I going <laughs> to repair it, you know, before she finds out? That sort of thing. And then you had All the Family bursting onto the scene with stories about. Uh, talking about politics and abortion and homosexuality right. and wife swapping. And <laughs> it was it more than perhaps any other show, it changed the face of television forever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Interesting. So another show, um, I Love Lucy.
2: Incredible, perhaps. I mean, you can get into arguments with people about what's the, perhaps the most defining and popular show. Uh, usually people will say either I Love Lucy or Star Trek, and I guess a good argument could be made for either show. Um, Very little has come up from I Love Lucy. Um, We have one of her wigs that she wore. We have uh, a wonderful smoking jacket that Ricky Ricardo wore. Great story behind that, and there's usually a great story behind every piece, but um, between the first and second season of the show, which was sponsored by Philip Morris, a cigarette manufacturer, (laughs) they had a contest among their salespeople to sell the most cigarettes. And the winner winner would get to go to California and meet Lucy and Desi and be there for the filming of an episode. And the second-place winner would win one of Desi Arnaz's smoking jackets. And so... I found the guy who won the costume and got the smoking jacket. It came with an original letter signed by Desi Arnaz, and uh, it was worn many, many times in the show. And that's boy, top ten piece for me. That's a really magical piece. But not much has come up. We have uh, we have one Ethel costume, um, but and costume design sketches, of course. Eloise Jensen was an amazing costume designer who created all the couture clothes that Lucille Ball wore. But not much. I mean, you're not going to find, like, Ricky Ricardo's drums or you're not going to find anything extraordinary. I mean, I like to think it's still somewhere out there, but 20-plus years, I haven't found them. Mm -hmm. Star Trek, on the other hand, lots of that stuff. We probably have a couple hundred pieces from the original series. We probably have 50 uh-huh. or 60 costumes from the show. Um, as I mentioned, I handled costume designer William Ware Tyson's estate um, and he left his all of his personal belongings to benefit a charity here in Los Angeles called Project Angel Food that brings hot meals to people who were shut in with HIV AIDS. And all these materials benefited that charity and I, and Butterfield and Fuller French were very involved for about a six-month period in making that auction happen. Again, I say a six-month period. I mean, today an auction company would dedicate, you know, two weeks to documenting and photographing that stuff. That's all the time they would have. But back then, we just we watched every show a few times, and we we really did it slowly. Um, but let me tell you one of what. It, what one of the best aspects of working for Butterfields was for me, and that is um, they owned a bank. (laughs) The owner of Butterfields owned uh, a bank, and they were very happy to uh, make advances. They were very happy to finance people's payments. So I found out Mm -hmm. early on that if I bought something at auction at Butterfields and I was willing to pay their interest rate, I could pretty much buy whatever I wanted. Mm -hmm. So... This was like in the early 1990s. I spent nearly $100,000 at that auction, and I wow. bought most of it. I bought, wow, I mean, virtually every guest-starring alien that was on the show, uh, most of Mr. Tice's original uh, costume sketches, jewelry, uh, and so on. Uh, in fact, I was sitting <laughs> sitting next to Joe Maddalena, who is the proprietor of Profiles in History, and we were sitting there and... It was just a great afternoon. I bought most of the stuff. Most people were shaking their head at like, what are you doing? <laughs> and I think I just finally paid off that debt to Butterfield's, like, I don't know, a couple of years ago. I, was I mean, ask. on and on and on. But uh, it was an amazing collection. I mean, this was his entire workroom, and many of the costumes were previously exhibited at the Smithsonian. Um, so that was really, really great. Hmm.
1: Very interesting. What about shows like, older shows like The Odd Couple, My Three Sons, Dick Van Dyke show? Uh, all of those
2: shows that you're mentioning suffer from the same problem, and that is the wardrobe is ND, nondescript. Yeah. So when you have a show, let's say Dick Van Dyke, really My Three Sons, the same issue where they're just wearing sort of off-the-rack gentleman's clothes of the period or just dresses you would have bought at Bullock's or... One of the area shops here in Los Angeles at the time. The problem is, unless they were marked with very detailed labels, mm-hmm. once they went back in a rental stock, the history is lost forever. You know, if, if George Reeves' tunic goes back in a rental stock, I mean, it doesn't take a psychic to figure it out when you when you come across it. But right. to have a 60s style, you know, two-button blazer to once that goes back into rental stock, to determine what it was is nearly impossible. So as a result, most of that stuff just never was rediscovered.
1: What about um, the Twilight Zone?
2: Twilight Zone. That is really an important show on, on many, many levels, and nothing comes up from the Twilight Zone. Uh-huh. Uh, I think at Profiles in History, in their last auction, I think they had a... a, a an end credit title card painted on glass
1: right.
2: in the auction. I think that uh, sold for tens of thousands of dollars. A um, few things have come up. Uh, I'm sure you remember the episode Eye of the Beholder where the very, very pretty lady was trying to have surgery so she could look uh, yeah. like everybody else, and they had sort of like snout-like <laughs> features. Right. Um, I have one of those makeup appliances. Oh, um, wow. I was very happy to get it. It took probably $5,000 in museological conservation to sort of uh, put it back into shape. As you know, buying anything that's foam based is not great over time. It'll just disintegrate being in the air. Right. But we did our best. But very little has come up. I'm aware of no Rod Sterling wardrobe. Wow. Uh, I'm uh, unaware of any really, truly. Visual episode-specific pieces. Have you heard of any?
1: No. It's one of my all-time favorite shows, and I've just never seen any anything, at least that you know is authentic, you know, come up. So
2: Okay, tell me, without thinking about it much, if you could have one piece from The Twilight Zone for your collection, what would it be?
1: Oh, man. I would have to think about that for a long time, I think.
2: <laughs> for me, it would have to be the To Serve Man cookbook. That's what I would have to have.
1: Yeah, that would be a good one. There's, that's the thing about that shows there's so many great visuals that it's just um that's why I'm kind of surprised that nothing ever turns up because there's so many things that were you know custom made for the for the shows and uh I just never see anything out there for it
2: there are a few pieces here and there in private collections that will stay there forever uh, my friend and client David copperfield I believe has one of the ventriloquist Oh dummy.
1: really that'd be um, a good one
2: but those pieces, you know, once you get in the collection of a, uh, you know, somebody who's very well healed, uh, it's there. It will stay forever. So I think the pieces that have surfaced in Twilight Zone are sequestered into private archives and will perhaps never make their way back into the marketplace. Mm-hmm.
1: So what about a show like Cheers?
2: Uh, Cheers, very important show, long running, beloved. Um, it is the sort of show that was very lucky in that it just lives on and on and on in syndication. Certain mm-hmm. shows do and certain shows do not. I think because of it, the the brand is still fresh in everyone's mind. Everybody knows Cheers. Everyone knows Seinfeld. Everyone knows Raymond. Mm-hmm. So I think those are good things to acquire from from my perspective because they're memorable and the the legacy continues through all of its showings. Not much has come up. I remember... One of Sam Malone's jackets came up in the very early 90s. Some little things, Carla's fun sort of earrings, little things like that, never anything uh, tremendously important.
1: How about um, the Cosby show? Uh,
2: After after that show went off the air, there was a cast-and-cruise sale in New York in the... People involved in the show had the opportunity to buy uh, many of the set deck set decorations. Um, I don't know what's truly memorable from this show. I mean, I remember the there was a grandfather clock in the entryway, and I know they had some you know some interesting and colorful artwork on some of the walls. But I don't know. Even though it was a very important show. I don't know what people would want to see from that show. I mean, it's different. You know, it, that show is no less important than Cheers, but I think if you have the Cheers bar on view, people would be very excited to see it. If you right. had Heathcliff, Huxtable's Living Room Sofa, I, <laughs> I don't know that people would connect to it in the same way. You know what I mean?
1: Right. So my friend Arnaud in France, he wanted me to ask you about um, Stephen Boschko shows, especially Hill Street Blues, if you guys have anything from any of his productions.
2: We do indeed. I mean, we have, directly through Mr. Boschko, we we received a lot of the materials from L.A. Law, uh, a lot of wardrobe. It's Um, actually
1: one of my favorite shows growing up was L.A. Law.
2: Was it? Yeah. I mean, it's amazing to me that, you know, Arnie Becker and these vivid, great characters, I mean, some of these actors who walk down the street right now, and they would just, I'm sure they would not be recognized. Right. Such an important show. Yeah. so we do have, uh, I don't know, 50 perhaps wardrobe ensembles from LA Law. Again, I don't know if uh, when they make it to exhibition, are people going to care about seeing, you know, sort of late 80s sort of fashion? I don't know. <laughs> but it's an important show, so we conserve it. Uh, Hill Street Blues is another. We certainly have, you know, Hill and Ranko and some of the other boys. We have their Hill Street precinct. Uh, powder blue uniforms with navy pants. Uh, have a number of those, um, but not not a lot has come up from Hill Street. Again, I'm not sure what that visual piece would be that people would line up to see. I, you know, it's, I don't know if there's a great exterior sign that Hill Street Precinct or something that tells the story. Um, maybe it's the uniforms. Hmm.
1: Yeah, then um, my friend Jan in uh, Germany wants to know about what you might have from Magnum Pi.
2: Magnum Pi. <laughs> if I see one more fake Hawaiian print shirt, I'm going to jump <laughs> off the roof. I mean, it seems that a week doesn't go by when somebody isn't passing off uh, a you know a black shirt with an orchid pattern or a red shirt with a parrot pattern as Tom Selleck's for Magnum. Um, the documented pieces that have Uh, lived on from that show are a few. I think I have one black shirt. I have the original plate off of the Ferrari. Uh, I have some of his ID cards. I do have the original ring that he wore that came directly from the prop man who worked on set uh, that I got from him upon his retirement. Um, Not much has surfaced from that show either, except the uh, lovely fan-produced shirts, which seem to come out (laughs) once a week.
1: Yeah. What about um, the X-Files?
2: We do have some great stuff from the X-Files. We have the actual set walls from the morgue, and we have a lot of stuff from um, David Duchovny's office. A lot of his framed uh, uh, degrees and diplomas and accommodations that were on his... uh, His wall, we have an alien isolation chamber, which is actually from the X-Files film. Um, There was a great sale that Julian's did of X-Files material a number of years ago. Um, It wasn't called Julian's then, I don't think, but there was an auction. The stuff came directly from the studio and was marketed to benefit, I think, a children's uh, charity or a children's art program. And um, we have lots of episode-specific stuff from the X-Files. Let me see if you, you're a fan, are you?
1: Yeah, well, until like the last two seasons. <laughs>
2: last two seasons. Collectors are so specific. <laughs> so we have, we also, let's see. I mean, we have like, again, from the Coveney who played Fox Mulder, we have like his Department of Justice plaque that was on his wall, his Quantico plaque, I see his FBI plaque. And then we have lots of episode-specific uh, files and uh, hand props. You know, here I see Dana Scully's voodoo doll from the great episode Thief. That was a season seven mm-hmm. episode. Or I see here's Dana Scully's autopsy goggles. And then you get into specific things like the Chinga doll. That was a great episode called Chinga around season five.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, she ended up being thrown in the microwave and incinerated. <laughs> we have the version. Uh, there's a great episode called Kangaska about this sort of moody, mysterious, deadly rock that was brought over um, from, I think, Siberia. We have the rock and we have the uh, FBI bag that it was carried over in. So we have, we have lots of episode-specific things from that show because they are, in fact, visual and fun. Uh, sometimes that isn't the case.
1: So, how many people work with you to do all this research, catalog things, and um, you know, use different kinds of preservation skills and techniques? And um, you know, what's sort of the behind the scenes of how you curate all this material?
2: Well, as we've been talking about, uh, the most important thing is acquiring pieces that are original, that have uh, that were thoughtfully acquired, and That is something that I do hands-on by myself. I mean, I have a large network of people who are fellow collectors and curators and fans and and studio archivists and uh, people who uh, have vast archives of photographic images, and I utilize a a network of hundreds of people to do what I do. I mean, I Hmm. can't walk into a room and magically... Uh, tell whether something is uh, authentic. It takes a lot of sort of detective work to come to that conclusion. I mean, there are pieces that that take months or even years to properly document. So I do that. I head that team, but that's probably a team of 100-plus people that I utilize in order to do my job well. Uh, as far as conservation, we are members of the American Association of Museums. We do everything to an accredited museum standard which means that when these pieces come in, they have to be handled by conservators. These are the same people who are, for example, working at the L.A. County Museum of Art, our textile conservator, our paper conservator, our object conservator, all uh, were previously with the L.A. County Museum of Art, um, and we have the highest level of collection care in this area. Museums have various uh, policies when it comes to collection care. Some of them have what's called conservation upon exhibition, which means they can acquire a piece, and if they don't exhibit it for 10 years, they don't do anything to really conserve it. My policy here uh, is called conservation upon acquisition, which means when a piece comes through the door and it needs care, and many of them do, we uh, proactively start its conservation. We cannot necessarily uh, begin uh, the process as soon as it comes through the door, because a lot of times you need just the right conservator and there could be a three or six month waiting list for that person. But we very actively conserve the pieces. It doesn't do us any good. It doesn't serve history well to have a bunch of pieces that are falling apart. And some conditions are like cancer. You've got to remove them right away or they will destroy the host object and it will be terminal. So especially when pieces come in that have anything to do with, uh, deterioration or insect infestation or uh, a lot of textiles, older textiles decay from the perchloroethylene, that's the major chemical in dry cleaning fluid. Um, Mm -hmm. Things like fake blood, perspiration, makeup uh, all over time will compromise if not deteriorate a textile. So those things have to be dealt with seriously and quickly. So there are I would say a dozen, maybe two dozen people that we, that we work with in that regard as far as the keeping the objects healthy, doing the intake conservation, and then, of course, all the maintenance. Uh, we have a great team of studio artists. Uh, some pieces just need to be touched up. You know, when a, when a piece comes off set at the end of production, it's, they're treated pretty roughly. You know, it's, the idea is the show is over, the stuff literally gets hurled into a, a giant moving van or a low boy trailer. It gets thrown in. It goes to storage where it sits in a stack in a heap for six months or a year until the studio decides that it won't, the show not coming back and we don't want to hold it anymore. So even things that are coming off of very contemporary productions come to us in rough shape. Um, since we view these pieces of, you know, as objects of art, we... Often try to find the original person who created it, and that is the person we seek out to do the the restoration. Um, like for example, if we have a, uh, you know, if we get a share dress from the Sunny and Share show, we would approach Bob Mackey and Rhett Turner, and see if they could do the restoration before we would go on to to other possibilities. And that that's true with, you know, when we. Restore the Tonight Show, Johnny Carson Tonight Show. About every five years, we have to go over the whole set because just it's sitting in storage. These are 14, 18-foot-high set walls that weigh 1,000 pounds. You have to go in and re-adhere the surfaces and, and check them for various problems. We had the original guy, Chris Kuhn, an incredible artist, uh, who worked on uh, restoring the set between... Uh, seasons of The Tonight Show, he is the same person who restores uh, The Tonight Show set now that it's retired and Mm -hmm. with us in this archive. So, uh, hard to answer your question, but there is a big team of people that help us do the right thing on behalf of these sort of holy shrouds of television.
1: Mm -hmm. So ultimately, you said you're looking to possibly have a museum to exhibit some of this material?
2: Absolutely. Uh, You know, we have beautiful climate light, humidity controlled uh, archival storage, but that's not why these pieces have been saved. I think on some higher level, it's not why the universe sort of moved these pieces into my direction and and why I have them. I mean, the, the highest purpose is for people to be able to see them and to use these pieces as sort of an attractor of a social history museum where we can talk about what was going on in our country at various times, on-screen and off-screen, and that's what uh, we intend these pieces to be used for. Uh, We do loan out the pieces to existing accredited museums, so the pieces uh, are on view, but we are working on and are getting close to uh, realizing our own permanent museum where we can specifically tell the story of television. There is not an object based museum on earth whose mandate is to honor and celebrate television which i think is horrendous and that's the role we play we are here to uh, take care of these great objects whether they're costumes or props or sets or vehicles or scripts Uh, they deserve their dignity and we are here to preserve them and to celebrate them and that's where our museum will come in a permanent place where this can take place
1: Okay, and I know I've taken you way over our time, but I have two more questions, if that's okay. Two more. <laughs> two more. <laughs> Question number one, what advice would you give to new collectors who have a modest budget as far as um, making sure what they buy is authentic and taking care of um, you know, the few pieces that they might buy? I know that's a really vague question, but it's
2: it's the biggest question i mean it's it's really the most important question for people who are interested in these pieces, whether it's on a fan level or uh, they ascend to something greater and they actually want to curate or conserve these pieces um, you know it 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 comes down to I think just being being thoughtful using common sense um, uh, probably the most difficult thing I do in my work is that when i'm paid to come in and review somebody's collection and give them my thoughts on uh, what they can do better. Oftentimes, I'm confronted with people who have lots and lots of little things, none of them individually, that are that memorable or important. Mm-hmm. And I would tell you, firstly, buy the single best piece you can afford. There's nothing wrong with not having tens of thousands of dollars to spend. I mean, you can right. the mad the great thing about our, our art market is If you had $500 or $1,000 to spend, you could could find something that's very nice. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say be patient. I think a lot of people, entry-level collectors, rush into the hobby and they buy something quickly and then regret it. It's not real, it's stolen, it's fan-produced, or it's just uh, inconsequential. So I would say that would be my first rule you know, be thoughtful, take your time, buy the best single piece you can, don't, some people want to sort of become collectors overnight, and they'll buy a bunch of these little sort of things that don't mean anything to anybody, even to them after a few months, so be patient, be patient, also don't be dependent on auction companies. Mm -hmm. Auction companies are not our enemies, but they're also not our friends. Their business model is to sell as as many things as possible as quickly as possible, Mm -hmm. and that's not necessarily having the same mission as a collector which is to find great things that are you know properly authenticated Um, so take your time there are resources out there like the original prop blog that can help advise them there are people like myself and others you know there are great people in this hobby like you know Brianna Livy Mm -hmm. at the Golden Closet and others prop store people who have spent a lot of time really getting it right Uh, most of us are available to help first timers. I, you know, I probably give away as much time as I sell (laughs) in consulting and I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to do it. So, uh, take your time, get it right.
1: All right. Second question. Um,
2: that was only one question. That was like 45 (laughs) minutes.
1: Second question is (laughs) what, um, what do you think are the biggest, maybe three issues? Uh, that, that makes it three questions. What do you think are the biggest... Did I cancel my dinner (laughs) plans? Just tell me that, Jason DeBoer. We're almost done. What are the biggest issues facing the hobby today? In your opinion.
2: Boy. Boy. Got an hour? (laughs) That should have been the first question, not the last question.
1: Well, we can always do a part two. Wow.
2: (laughs) It only took about a year to get this conversation going. Um, Well. I think I think one of the big issues is what we've talked about a few times, sort of uh, acquiring pieces that are not properly authenticated. I think that's probably the biggest issue. I mean, I think a lot of people who, who are online or buying through places like eBay, which you know I've found great pieces on eBay, and I've seen some horrific pieces on eBay. Mm-hmm. Um, Hmm, that is an awfully big, <laughs> such a big question. I mean, I could spend the next month answering that question. Perhaps you could break it down to a smaller question.
1: Um, yeah, maybe we should do a part two.
2: <laughs> I think that, you know, it's 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 sort of like what your mom told you. Buyer beware. You, you have to make good choices for yourself. You have mm. to take your time, buy pieces that... Uh, are right you want to and this is in any art market you want to work with people who 've been around and doing it a long time who have reputations that uh are stellar um a lot of these things I see on eBay and it says comes with c o a and then they 'll send you the c o a and it 's like from authenticated by somebody in Riley Kansas that you 've never heard of right um I think you just have to you have to go slow. Don't rush. But I think the the problem is materials that are not uh, well documented. I think that's the big issue. I think that uh, as auction companies sort of move towards doing these mega auctions where they're selling a thousand plus pieces, mm-hmm. uh, I think that worries me. Uh, I think that. You know, auction companies are a lot like people. Each has their own sort of personality or corporate sensibility. Some are, you know, just sort of lazy and indifferent.
1: Some mm-hmm.
2: want to get it right. Some are absolutely arrogant and rabid. They don't want to get it right. They just want to be right. right. And I think that uh, don't depend on auction companies. They should not be your sole source of information on an object. Mm-hmm. That being said... They get some truly magnificent pieces. I buy at auction all the time. Of course, I'm very knowledgeable and have 20-plus years' experience. But I think that uh, selling so much materials uh, is dangerous from the authentication perspective. I think it also floods the market and makes the materials somehow feel like they're less important when you're selling so many of them on one afternoon. Right. I think that's a problem. Um, you know i think perhaps as a more of a curator and preservationist i worry that these pieces that people are buying i worry that people don't have a skill set sufficient to care for the materials i mean i i hope that people are not wearing them and you know displaying them in their homes right across from that big bay window mm. and that sort of thing i worry about how these materials will live on generation after generation without a certain degree of care. Um, that is a big concern, I believe. What do you think the one big issue is?
1: Um, I mean, I agree with pretty much everything that you're saying. I think, I think the biggest issue is just the standard at which um, something is accepted as authentic is pretty low. Um, if you kind of take an average of what people's opinions are, because for me, a lot of the times um, what someone else says, oh, this is authentic, I would look at the information they have about it. And, um, you know, for me, it's inconclusive. And, right. And I think the the other challenge is that proving things to be inauthentic is probably as much work, if not more, than, <laughs> than proving something is authentic. So.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I've, I've had people hire me for weeks at a time, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, and at the end of my work, I have to say to them, look, I, I'm 70% sure about what I'm going to tell you, but it's um, 70% sure, not 100% sure. And they scratch their heads and can't imagine why anything would be inconclusive after spending 20, 30, 40 hours uh researching it, but that's absolutely true. Some pieces you will just never know. I yeah. mean, when you start to think about how these pieces were repurposed and how a vintage film costume could have worked in two, three, four, five films and then went to rental stock and rented out for Halloween costumes mm-hmm. and so on. And the fact that it was redyed and shortened and it was long sleeve and out short sleeved and uh there was there were buttons and now there's a velcro closure up the front and right. so on Sometimes you just can't get at the truth, not conclusively, yeah. and that's when I direct my buyers to pass. Right. You know? uh, sometimes we'll never know the complete story. And if you're buying something, especially for five or ten or twenty or a hundred thousand dollars, if you're not sure, you don't buy it.
1: Yeah, and I think some people have the mentality where they'll still buy it if it's at the right price. Like the doubt is there's kind of a, like a scale of proportion of how much they're willing to spend to take a risk because it might be authentic, even though they know they'll never be able to prove it. So
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I talk to entry-level collectors all the time, and uh, I look at something and I say, well, this, you know, forgive me, but this isn't even close to what it's supposed to be. It's the wrong color, the wrong materials. They never use this kind of gun and so on. And I I ask, why did you buy it? And they will respond, "Oh, because it was only four hundred (laughs) dollars." Exactly. And I'm like, "Wow! I mean, you must be wealthy because you just threw four hundred dollars into the fireplace." Right. So yeah, I do believe that there is uh, sort of a a sliding scale of diligence that people will uh, I don't know a lot of compromise that goes on, and Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't subscribe to that. And I just think, again, you just got to do your homework if you're not sure the piece is real. Why do you want it anyway, even if it's given to you? Why do you want it if it isn't what it's
1: supposed to be? Right. Yeah. I, I don't understand it, but that's... <laughs> I think I'm in the minority sometimes. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm
2: thankful for your work in the original prop blog. Uh, I think it's great that there are a few people out there that are endeavoring to educate people and um, are lobbying for transparency in our marketplace, in our art market. I mean, that's all we really want, isn't it, is just transparency. Right. If the object is what it is. Let's have a conversation about it and take out your paperwork and let's, let's all look at it and so on. A lot of this stuff is so kind of, you know secretive and a lot of these people in the hobby sort of live in the shadows and if this market is going to become a true and enduring art market we really have to bump up the standard of uh, authentication across the board i mean the the truly sophisticated buyer will always be able to hire somebody like me but each of us has to be committed to being accurate and honest and transparent
1: yeah i agree and I appreciate over the years uh, your behind the scenes support of uh, the blog. And, um, you know, you've been as supportive as anybody. So I've always really appreciated it. I just want to thank you for that. My pleasure. Keep on keeping on. Oh, and one last thing. Oh, my God. Go ahead. <laughs> so you joined Facebook yesterday.
2: <sighs> you know what? It's only because my wife, Amber, has shamed me. So often that I am the only human left in the United States that isn't on Facebook. So yesterday, I started and I am now on Facebook and I'm madly uploading photos and videos that I'm not sure anybody really cares about, but I'm going to do it, if only to quiet my lovely wife, and we'll see how it goes now that... uh, uh, We've had this chat, and hopefully some of your listeners have had a chance to meet me. They will all go to my Facebook page and do whatever it is you're supposed to do.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll put a link on the article for this uh, podcast so people can find you.
2: Let me also give you my uh, email address. If there are those that are coming up against difficult problems, Mm -hmm. Um, I can't necessarily spend three hours talking to you, but you can shoot me an email. My last name is Commissar C-O-M-I-S-A-R at gmail.com.
1: Great. And your website?
2: Website. I do have one of those and I've had it for many years. It's a great site. Uh, That is museumoftv.org. Great.
1: Well, thanks so much for taking A lot of time to talk with me today, and uh, I'm sure everyone will enjoy listening to uh, this and getting to know you a little bit better. It was my pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening to our program, Prop Talk. For the latest news about the world of original television and movie memorabilia, please visit us online at www.originalpropblog.com.